You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. Joining me in studio today is my co-host, Dr. Mike Razor. Mike, how are you? I'm doing great, Chris. I'm full from, from Thanksgiving. Good. Full. Ate too much. Duck season opened. Everyone's excited. It did. It's awesome. Also joining us on today's podcast is Dr. Scott Stevens from Ducks Unlimited Canada. Scott, welcome hey, back. There we go. Thanks. Always good to join you guys. And the theme music continues. The wrong was righted. You didn't. He didn't have his his theme music last time he was on the on the episode on the podcast. I know because it was just Scott and I, and I said, "Hey, Scott, I'm not going to play your theme music." And he's yeah. like, "Thank you." No, did he say thank you? <laughs> I said, what? "I said that's okay." He said, "That's, that's okay." That's, that's what okay. I figured your response would have been. Of course, he's going to say that. That's right. I think we had a discussion about of. An ounce of pretension is worth a pound of manure was actually. (laughs) (laughs) We had that conversation. I don't remember that. (laughs) But you must not have been recording when you had that. Well, we've got Dr. Stevens on the show today. (laughs) Moving right along. Moving on. Moving on. Uh, We've got Scott Stevens on the show today because we 
Mike and I and Scott are going to be doing a species profile. We haven't done one of these in, in quite some time, really. I think it's been last season, Mike, last year even. Yeah, and um, I guess Chris decided that I don't know enough about ducks, so he had to bring in uh, the relief, which, bring I, in which the I agree hitters. with. But I think it's important to have the heavy, heavy hitters on this particular episode, especially with this species profile, because it is the yeah. northern pintail. Yeah. Super popular species. Mike, if you want to go ahead and get started with this, where well, we just kind of, you know, I think we originally started out these with, you know, taxonomy, you know, really, you know, what is this bird? What, you know, just the introduction to the northern pinto. Yep, for sure. And again, just to kind of reiterate, we have done a number of these in the past and we've worked through some of these. A pintail is one that's been on our list for obvious reasons. It is one of uh, one of the most highly prized birds out there. It's one of the most beautiful birds out there. They're not as common. They're not as ubiquitous as mallards or some of the teal are. And, and so it's just a really cool bird. They, they're also, they also have been the focus of a lot of scientific and, uh, research over the past 40 years or more. And part of that relates to their population status and long-term decline in that population. And so it's a, it's a species around which we can, we can tell a, a pretty interesting, although in some cases it's, it's a, it's sort of a, a depressing story about mm-hmm. what has kind of led to those declines. But then we can also talk about a lot of the conservation programs that Ducks Unlimited and others have put into place or tried to put into place to help reverse some of those long-term population declines. So a lot of information on this. And and I guess full confession, I was the one that said, let's bring Scott Stevens on because <laughs> I know he has spent way more time thinking about this bird and actually studying it up there on the prairies than I have. And he's going to be able to speak uh, firsthand to a lot of this information. So with that kind of kind of backdrop, I'll, we'll get right into this, as you said, Chris, and we're going to we're going to breeze through some of this because we want to get to the heavy conversation about what's going on with the population, uh, what can be done, what are we trying to do, uh, that type of, of information will will be pretty unique among some of the others that we've talked about. So from a uh, from a taxonomy standpoint, like which which bird is this? What does it relate most related to? Uh, that the scientific name is Anas acuta. It's in the same genus as um, all other, most other dabbling ducks. There have been some taxonomy changes here the past few years, but it's in the same genus as most other dabbling ducks. Uh, has taxonomic relatives, including, I think, Eaton's pintail, yellow-billed pintail. I forget what one of the other worldwide species. White cheeked. Species, uh, what, white-cheeked. Hmm. Yeah. What did that, what was the first, what was the first one I said? Eaton's? The second one you I said. You said Eaton's or something. Yeah, Eaton's. And what's the other one I said? Yellow bill. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right. So I was thinking, I was thinking white cheeked, and I said yellow bill. So I got him. And so the white cheeked is actually in sort of the Western Hemisphere in in um, Puerto Rico and some of those some of the Caribbean areas. So I've actually seen uh, white cheeked pintails. Have you, Steve? I've harvested a few this past summer in Argentina. Oh, Ooh. yeah, yeah. Cool, okay. cool bird. Yeah, but you know, you would recognize them as pintails. I didn't realize it shows what I know about sort of their worldwide distribution of some of these species. I didn't realize that the white cheek pintail was all the way, made it all the way into Argentina. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Learn something every day. There we go. Shot shot yellow bill there too. Oh, okay. Even more cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So in terms of, let's see, any other relatedness over the species, we'll move right along here. The appearance, one of the most recognizable species, certainly when you're talking about the drake, uh, they tend to have a longer neck than most other dabbling duck species. They have, especially when they're, when they're in full plumage, the drake is unmistakable. That chocolate colored head with the white stripe going up the neck, very long, the, the, the pin feather, the pin tail, and let's see, what else? The herringbone color on the side. So just, I would imagine most folks here know what a pin Yeah, and I like. think they're one of the easiest to identify for hunters too, because yep. even silhouetted, you can see that pintail, the long neck kind of makes it um, a little more visible. Yep. You know, I think I think hunters can pick those out a little better than, than other species. Yep. However, the female tends to be mistaken for a gadwall on occasion, um, has happened before. So. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 kind of uh, if you're trying to shoot drakes, they're kind of tough to sort out early in the season if you're in the north. I was gonna say, I saw you kind of shaking your head a little bit there. Yeah, in the north, not not as easy. Right, I'm I'm basing it on where I'm hunting. Yeah, here. yep. Uh, let's see, about the size of some of the other dabbling ducks that we have. Probably, I didn't actually check on the weight here, but it's gonna be in the neighborhood of a gadwall. I would guess mm -hmm. a little bit smaller than a than a mallard. Uh, and and Scott, feel free to chime in here yeah, if yeah, I, I get any of this stuff. Kinda. I, I would just say. You know, when I think about pintails or how I would try and describe them to somebody who hasn't seen them is they're, you know, kind of long and slender and the wings are, wings are also kind of streamlined, you would say. Um, you know, actually when they're flying and courting in the springtime, they remind me of shorebirds, you know, the kind mm -hmm. of wing shape and they do all this darting and dancing. So yeah, kind of unique in their in their flight and a, a bunch of features of them. Yeah, they are very well known for their their aerial pursuits where you'll have six or eight or 12 drakes chasing and courting a single or two, two or three females. A very, very characteristic. So tons of photos out there of that, that acrobatic display. Yeah. And all ducks will do that. But mm -hmm. pintails just, I think, because of the combination of what Scott talked about, just their their appearance, their shape, and some of the movement, it, uh, they, they really stand out as some of those more charismatic species in, um, during those courtship flights. Uh, let's see. I guess we'll do the call uh, for folks that want to know what this bird sounds like. Most folks that have been hunting for a while will recognize the distinctive sort of whistle, as we call it, of the drake. It's actually listed here in this app as the male buzz peep. So here it That's goes. a new term we'll just, for me. We'll, we'll continue. We'll That's continue, a new term. We'll continue to call it the whistle, though. Yeah, there you well, go. That's it. And I would imagine most of us have a uh, have a have a whistle on our lanyard to try to imitate the call of a pintail. Have you ever found those pretty uh, you know effective? No, Scott. No. No. <laughs> no. Save your money. No. <laughs> like I have, I have, I have one on my lanyard. When pintails around, I'm blowing that. But it's far more effective to blow the mallard hen call. <laughs> Speaking of the mallard hen call, we were, we have also in this app here the female flight quacks. And Chris, you and I were commenting that it was very rare that we've ever yeah, I don't think known ever that we've heard yeah. a female pintail quacking. Scott, yeah, experience? no, I I haven't heard a ton of them either. Like I I don't think they're nearly sure they do. I, I don't think they're nearly as vocal as 
mallards? So uh, let's see. In terms of distribution, they are pretty cool in that regard as well. They're found throughout um, throughout the northern hemisphere uh, globally. Sizable populations. I don't know what the numbers are, but sizable populations in Europe, uh, breeding over there in Siberia and wintering in various locations such as Western Europe or, or portions of Africa and, and India and Asia. And we hear a lot of folks talking about some pintail research that occurs in Japan mm-hmm. as well. And there's some fairly well documented exchange of you know band recoveries from in the U.S. that of birds banded in in Japan and and then vice versa. So we know that type of distribution occurs, and and not all species that we have here in North America have that sort of um, circumpolar that northern hemisphere global northern hemisphere uh, distribution. But in North America, I would argue they're mostly a Western bird. It depends on how you define Western. Yeah. Well. <laughs> but I, I would argue most of the Mississippi Flyway West. Yeah, most of the population. Yeah, yeah well, I was going to say most of the breeding population would be in the prairies and and a yeah. significant number up into Alaska. Yes, mm-hmm. not. I mean, there are pintails that breed in eastern Canada, but not nearly as many. So right. yes, they end up in Atlantic Flyway, not nearly the numbers that we see in Pacific and. Central and Mississippi. I really don't have a good handle on the breeding population estimates from, let's say, Hudson Bay, uh, from the Hudson Bay lowlands, any other portions, breeding regions of of eastern Canada. Yeah. Well, the other factor that's at play, right, is just the breeding survey is not set up to count pintails wherever pintails occur. It's designed to count mallards and we count pintails where... They occur, but yeah, some of those areas are not well served. Yeah. Also, to your point there, Scott, with this being sort of a quote more Western bird, their wintering distribution also kind of mirrors that. You know, the probably I don't know what the actual number is, but I'm going to guess close to close to half of the population is going to winter in the Pacific Flyway. Yeah, that's, um, that sounds pretty about right. close to the other. Pretty close to another half will be in you know just short of a of a, the other half will be in the. Central and Mississippi combined. And then there will be 5 10% in the Atlantic Flyway. That's probably going to be pretty generous. If we're looking at uh, the distribution of harvest as an index of that distribution of the population size, that's kind of where it would fall. Yeah, I, w- I wondered how many halves you were going to have there to start with. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of halves. I, I kind of the, the had third, to back the off third of that. half would be, uh, <laughs> no. That's why I had to say close to a half, close to another half. I think one of the most impressive things for me and something that I learned when I started working for Ducks Unlimited because I never really put it together. I mean, some of our listeners might find it interesting is that these these birds, not not the majority by any means, but, you know, there's a lot of pintails that breed in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Um, and Scott, you oh, kind of yeah. hit it on that where, you know, up in Alaska, Western Alaska, Northern Western Alaska, some of those areas up around the Arctic, really where you find a lot of snow goose colonies, breeding colonies, there are pintails up there as well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you'll have to indulge me, but can I tell a story about that? Like, I have a theory, Chris, as to why yeah, no, I'm, why, yeah, why this occurs. Like, based on my experience with pintails on breeding areas in the prairies, they're really well adapted to be a species to take advantage of low nesting cover. And, you know, I would cite things like they've got that super long neck and if the hen is setting on a nest, she can see forever. So tundra areas kind of meet the same standard as really short grass prairie. And, you know, for me, what what was always cool is if you had a pintail nest you were going to monitor, you almost never flushed the hen off of the nest because she would see you coming. She would sneak off in the grass and she would flush somewhere 
you know, away from the nest. Mm. So, you know, when I think about the kinds of habitats that pintails nest in in the prairies, it's like, yeah, on the top of a hill, really short grass could be a long ways from water. And then I think about tundra areas, it's like, oh yeah, those would be the same kind of places where I think, you know, at least my theory would be their defense for predation is, hey, I'm going to be in a good vantage point and I'm going to see anything coming and it might get my nest, but it's not going to get me. Hmm. That's that's a pretty interesting theory. That's, yeah. that's awesome. So I had some nesting within 15 yards of, maybe it was, it was actually less than that, 10 yards of, of the tent that I was staying in on the YK Delta. I was really impressed at the number of pintails nesting up there. Of course, it's well it's well known that yeah. that is another an, another very, very important breeding region for, for that species and a lot of others as well. Yeah, but did it have that kind of short, short grass? No, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Super short grazed. There was a little, it was hiding in amongst a little tuft of grass. Yeah. But uh, yeah, very, very short, uh, short grass conditions there. And could they see you coming? Would they sneak off if you went to? No, nah, I think she had become habituated to okay. kind of our presence there because she's ne- never snuck off. I actually was able to get within about five yards of her and take some pretty cool photos. Cool. So, but that was, yeah, after multiple days of just kind of figuring out that, okay, these people are here all the time. Yeah. They haven't tried to eat me yet. You didn't tell her probably who you were. Okay. Mm, it's fine. No, it's fine. no. <laughs> I, actually, I probably did. <laughs> you probably tried. I probably that did. Anyway, so, yeah. so it's, it's, it's talk softly to her. It's going to be okay. I'm just going to take a photo. Don't get off. So the other thing that I think is cool to think about them and thinking about, once again, I'll show my bias, breeding areas, is you think about traditional areas that maybe used to have lots of pintails and maybe habitat alteration has changed that. You know, they're also well adapted to get in and take advantage of very shallow water that may only be there for a short amount of time. And Mike, I know we'll probably talk about, you know, they have a lower clutch size, shorter incubation period. They are, on the breeding areas, they are set up to get in, get it done, get ducklings fledged. Ducklings fledge sooner than mallards do in less days. So they are really set up to deal with those ephemeral water areas that, the water may not be around for long. Yeah. And you know that that affinity for large, uh, for short, for landscapes that have short vegetation where they can see a long way, that also extends to their breeding or uh, to their, to some of the habitats that they use uh, during winter. When you think about their, um, their prominent use of rice fields and other flooded agricultural fields, real short vegetation, uh, you have to think that's also sort of an adaptation, why they're so inclined to use those uh, related to those, those same things. They'd like to be able to see, yeah. like to be able to see a long way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in that regard, what about the, the boreal forest, uh, Scott? How, how much do we see them nesting there? They're going to be primarily the prairies and Alaska. There's going to be some breeding populations or a small number of breeding birds in California and the Intermountain West, Interior, British Columbia. But they're, how much How much do we think they occupy and breed in the boreal forest? I, I would say some, not a ton. You know, we, we definitely see more numbers in the boreal forest when we have the prairies go dry, right? You know, there's that latitudinal movement, the, you know, from a harvest management standpoint, they, they talk about the, the median latitude of the breeding population. And so, you know, they, they will occur in there. It's, you know, I, I would argue it's not the primary breeding location. You know, we've talked about those, like, you know, the prairies when they're wet are a prime breeding location. And there are some key areas in Alaska that that birds go to and, you know, those populations have been 
more stable than historic populations in the prairies. And then also from a wintering standpoint, just kind of going back, when you think about their distribution and what I said about them being so closely tied to rice and other flooded agricultural landscapes, it should thus be no surprise that the three most important regions for pintail during winter, California Central Valley, the uh, Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana, and the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. And all those are those areas correspond to the, uh, the major rice-producing regions in the U.S. And that's it's not to say they don't eat other grains, but the one thing that's really key about rice agriculture and being so beneficial for waterfowl is that it includes the infrastructure necessary to hold water um, on those fields during the winter, and that creates ideal habitat for, for pintails and other ducks, assuming we've got food in there. So that's what we see in terms of a winter distribution. That's not to say that you don't find them uh, in other places. You'll see them using a diversity of habitats. But if you want to see large concentrations of, of pintails, you go look for some of those large flooded agricultural fields in those in those areas. That hen, and this is just kind of a wintering distribution question for you two. What's the attraction to the coast? You know, you've got not not necessarily the rice fields that are along you know Texas coast and even Louisiana a little bit, but you know you see a lot of pintails. You know, if you're hunting down, you know, the Texas coast or even Louisiana, I mean, I was fishing in Louisiana last week and saw a ton of pintails down there. You know, what? what's that attraction there? Is that, you know, habitat availability maybe? Um, or is that a historical sig- significance? Kind of like snow geese used to always go to the coast, and, but pintails have just not really changed. They still go to the coast, something like that. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a combination of, of both. It's that sort of that historical, uh, that that tradition, but it's it's also... It's a relatively reliable landscape in terms of waterfowl habitat. This year's an exception mm-hmm. because it's like super dry all across the the, the Gulf Coast. Uh, but yes, it's very consistent. Pintails are one of the more kind of phylopatric. They show higher fidelity to areas than do some other species, and that includes some of their wintering geographies. Uh, so maybe maybe it has to do with that. And I mean the the condition of those of those coastal. Um, coastal marshes, when they're in good shape, they're going to be shallow yeah. and they're going to provide the resources that the birds need. It's That's kind of my off-the-cuff explanation, Scott. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think diverse coastal marshes provide, you know, a diversity of foods. You know, I, I was thinking back, I shot three pintails this year in a spot where I was hunting canvasbacks because I had really good sago pondweed in there. So they are taking advantage of submerged aquatics where it's abundant too. And that would definitely be the case along the Gulf Coast also. You know, Mike, you talked about a bit of phylopatry too. I, I recall from, you know, my days in the Mississippi Delta, just the, the cool things that you would see of how in tune with the change in conditions they were. And, you know, you would get a big rain in the Mississippi Delta and there would be pintails show up from the Gulf Coast, you know, flying low over, you know, shallowly flooded, you know, ag fields and moist soil and all those kind of things. But overnight, if you got a three-inch rain, you know, there would be pintails and green-winged teal would show up in the Mississippi Valley Mm -hmm. that were not there the night before. So the other thing that I'll say is uh, going back to the to the Gulf Coast, Texas specifically, pintails are known to, uh, some subset of the pintails wintering on the Texas coast are known to use the shoalgrass beds in the Laguna Madre. They'll forage on the rhizomes of, of shoalgrass. In some cases, 80, 90% of their 
of their esophageal contents would be shoalgrass rhizomes based on some of the studies that have been conducted uh, down there. Whether those are whether those pintails belong to some other cohort of pintails, I, I don't know. I'm not really sure why some would choose to do that, and I don't know um, what we've learned from from more recent research about how you know, is it, are pintails that you find using shoalgrass beds in that hypersaline lagoon system always going to be using that? Or do you see them go into the, um, into the, uh, the flooded ag landscape? I'm sure you do. Matter of fact, as I hear myself saying that, we've seen that before. We've seen that out there on the Texas coast where we'd be out on Matagorda Island, a lot of birds using the laguna and then using the freshwater ponds on the island. Then all of a sudden we get a big rain and there's no more pintails around on the right. island. They've all gone inland. You yeah. know? There are The other thing, this is a good opportunity for me to say that there are a lot of other people studying, there are a lot of people studying pintails mm-hmm. right now using some some of these, some of the latest GPS tracking devices. And uh, we spoke with um, one of the, I'm trying to think if Javon Bank is actually doing any pintail work right now. He, I think he's done some pintail work. And so there are other folks there. Bart Ballard has a student doing some pintail work. And so we'll, we'll bring them on at some later date to yeah. talk about some of the specifics of their research related to movements and talking and, addressing some of the uh, some of these questions. Yeah, I think one of the, the fascinating questions that we get here, I get quite a bit, and I can pretty much say I don't know to just about any question that I get, but I have the <laughs> I have the luxury of doing that. So, and most of the times you're right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm always right. <laughs> Scott, it's been a while since you've lived in Memphis. Yeah. And, but there's a field, and if, if anybody's listening to this who, who drives Highway 40, or Interstate 40, coming out of Memphis, crossing the bridge, going into Arkansas. Just when you get past West Memphis, there's a field there. And most, and at least the guys that I talk to all the time, just call it Pintail Field. Mm. And it will, like, late December, early January, um, we'll get a 70-degree day and a huge rainstorm. And you're driving down 40, and, like, my phone's blowing up, and they're like, the Pintails are there. And this field loads up. Loads up. I mean, it could be, some days it's 5,000. Some days it looks like... 20,000. I mean, this is just buzzing with pintails. And everybody around here knows what that field is. Like, there are people probably listening like, oh, yeah, I know exactly where that is. <laughs> but the, the question that I always get, or even the guys that I hunt with, they're like, the ducks just got here. The pintails just got I'm like, no, man. Like, those just came from South Louisiana and Texas. Right. Like, they're coming north. They're shifting north with this new available habitat. And the cool part about it is a lot of these birds, you look out across the field, and if you're not going 95 miles an hour down 40 to keep up with traffic, and you slow down a little bit, um, you can look out there, and those things are covered with that rust yeah. color on their chest. And that's a good indication of them, you know, feeding in a marsh, something like that. It's like, uh, but that's the question that I get all the time. And is that something that it's... A lot of people think that's unique to pintails, or is it unique to pintails, or is that something that you know you see with a lot of other species where they'll travel? I mean, it's 400 miles from you know probably 350 from the coast to this field on Highway 40 uh, or Interstate 40. They'll make that jump, and then like you said, you walk out there the next day, and there's not a duck in that field. You know, they're gone. So that's it, an interesting distribution. Yeah, it, it's getting to the point you ask, is that, do other species do that the mm-hmm. same way pintails do? It's getting to the point where, I mean, like for, for white fronts and for snow geese, we've, there's data coming out showing those birds are making long movements. But there's also data on mallards in West Tennessee, which show those things are pretty sedentary. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of this, I, I would wager 
that a lot of this is going to be landscape and context specific. And context can also include the species that we're talking about, but not all landscapes are the same. They're not all not all the same in terms of the type of resources they provide, the type of disturbance that birds are receiving, the amount of habitat that's available, and, and so forth. But it's getting to the point where previously I would think that, yeah, all ducks do that, make these large movements during the winter, east, west, north, south, as, as habitat conditions or disturbance regimes change. But we're seeing some data that suggests that's not necessarily uniformly the case. And that mm-hmm. makes it pretty interesting right now. Some do, but there are probably others that, or there are others that aren't doing so much. Yeah. Like I, and I think you're bang on when you say it's context specific. So what you were describing, Chris, there, especially if that's happening in January, it's like, yeah, I'll bet money. That's birds moving up from the coast and they are ready to head north, right? Oh, there's courtship yeah, flies. You yeah, sit like, there and watch like courtship those birds flies. Are, not, yeah. Those birds are thinking about, hey, when are the prairies going to open up at that time mm-hmm. of the year? So they are pushing north up against ice lines and that sort of thing. But, you know, they're also driven by the need to get the energy that they need to make those jumps and fuel that migration and, you know, put on the reserves that they need to to do that. You know, they'll get most of the protein that they need once they arrive on breeding areas, but fueling that, that carbohydrates and fat to fuel migration happens in those areas. So yeah, context specific, but it is, it is something that we've discovered about pintails in almost all the studies that we've done like that, Mike, right? Like, I mean, I think back to Bobby Cox's work along the coast and it was like, yeah, he could tell when it rained in the MAV because overnight his birds would show up there. So, yeah. Yeah. And that was before GPS tracking devices were available. And that, that guy, crazy guy, got in planes <laughs> and would fly all over the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. And I, how was he marking the birds? Just with the VHF transmitters, the oh, ones that okay. you had to yeah. detect by way of yeah. a handheld yeah. antenna or, okay. or a strut mounted, in the case of uh, airplane, strut mounted antenna. Yeah. But, but again, so pintails may be a little bit easier to find them whenever they make those long-distance movements because of what I talked about earlier, we have such a, a good understanding of their affinity for those specific landscapes, right? And so it's not like he had to go to Alabama. He wouldn't be spending his time traveling to Alabama or East Texas looking for pintails. He was highly suspicious that if I can't find these birds in southwestern Louisiana, they're either going to be in the Texas coast or they're going to be in the Mississippi, uh, the yeah, the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, northern Louisiana, western Mississippi, or or Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So made it a little bit easier, I think, just to, to try to locate them in that case. Yeah, I, I think every time we get data like that, we're always a bit amazed about the movements. But you know, I, I do stop and think it's like you know we're we're fortunate that they have wings and they're as mobile as they are because yeah. you know. If things go dry, you know, we kind of freak out like, oh my gosh, the Gulf Coast is super dry. It's like, guess what? They will find an area where it's not dry. <laughs> yeah, especially in a year like this. So, so dry. They, they will mm-hmm. not hang around and uh, I would venture to guess starve to death, Brazier. That ain't going to yeah, happen. They're not going to happen. Just hope they can find some water before they do run out of, run out of fuel and all that and all their travels. Uh, so let's move on here. Uh, we've covered a lot of information here already, but uh, I think one of the things that y'all mentioned kind of leads nicely to this next sort of timing of things, pair formation. Uh, They're a a species that does develop pair bonds a little bit earlier um, than than some species. They're they're probably in that same range as mallards. They'll start forming pair bonds in late fall, early winter. I looked up some statistics here from some past studies Uh, in the Central Valley of California, and these are going to differ a little bit from year to year year and from region to region, but this will 
give you an idea. In Central Valley, there's one study that documented about 50% of the of the females that they were observing were paired by November, let's say mid-November. But then once it got into December and January, that's when the, the courtship and the pair bonding really started such that by January, 90% of the of the females had uh, had established pair bonds. Uh, and that same trend is is generally gonna gonna apply in, in other areas. But by December, January, the vast majority of those pintails are gonna have uh, formed pair bonds because they're one of the earliest birds to migrate north and and begin nesting along with mallards in the mid continent and uh, black ducks, I guess as well. They'll start heading north a little bit early too. So, yeah. yeah. Anything to add, Scott? No, I just have vivid memories in January of pintails doing those courtship flights in the Mississippi Delta, Mike, when I was in yeah. grad school. I, I wasn't yeah. very successful in getting in the right spot to harvest many of them, but you could see them out there and it was cool to watch. Your, your decoys your decoys on the water were not what was on their mind. No. What was on their mind was that one female that those 15 drakes were chasing and they were all intensely competing for that one female because right. they knew their opportunity and their time was running out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that, that is one of the reasons why, I and mean, we hear this a lot, people talk about, and we'll get to the sex ratio here in a minute. It is male bias. There is a stronger tendency. I guess I'll get to it right now. There is a tendency. <laughs> Skip right the, to it. The pintails have a uh, male bias sex ratio, like um, most, if not all, duck populations. Uh, and I always hate saying all because, you know, it's like there's always going to be an exception. But let's just say most duck populations. Male bias sex ratio of a bit higher of a male percentage than females. And there's a whole conversation and line of research happening right now in the waterfowl science community about some shifts in those in those sex ratios with them becoming increasingly male dominated. And people oftentimes will will talk about how they're seeing twenty and fifteen drakes to one pintail late in the season. Part of that is is gonna be simple mathematics if by 80 if by December and January 80 to 90% of the females are paired you're not really going to be seeing those females up and around quite as much as you would the others and so those it's going to be a, I would imagine a bit of a of an observation bias you're more likely to see those large groups of birds and we'll probably have people call in or write in and say you're crazy but yeah uh, we'll give we'll give them your email <laughs> mike yeah we'll give them your email but I, I would imagine that is some of it is because what i was saying in in january uh most of the females are paired yeah. and so you're going to have a lot of those unpaired males chasing a, a small number so, of females that are still out there you know and not to backtrack back to kind of the courtship behavior uh, but it is something that's very obvious that you know a lot of, of our listeners out there have seen but if you're if the birds are paired up in november december getting into january um, you know i've been up to the rainwater basin in march where you can sit there and look at these 10 acre wetlands these waterfowl production areas that are just loaded with like five to ten thousand pintails i mean they're just packed into these things and there is just a continuous cycle of courtship flights so if these birds are and that's the first week of march so if these birds are majority paired up early what are these ducks doing in march in the rainwater basin where you're seeing these courtship flights are they are there still additional courtship flights are they still competing for that hen by the time you get to march well so my contention is that for those courtship flights that's and I don't I don't know this, but I'm gonna guess that's still an unpaired female. 
and she could be a young female. And I don't know enough about how a female signals when she's ready to be paired and why this would, or if this, if these are males that are trying to sort of usurp that female from the, mm. the bird that she had been made, had been, been paired with. I don't know enough about all that. What do you know enough about? <laughs> I don't know. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. But I also want to say that with my earlier comment about sort of an observation bias on what people are seeing and talking about, I'm not for, I don't for a second mean to suggest that there hasn't been a shift in the sex ratio in, in any duck populations or with, uh, in pintails in specific. I mean, I think there is pretty good evidence from some of the data that, that I've seen that we are seeing an increasingly male biased sex ratio in pintails and a few other duck species. There's going to be an entire special session at the upcoming duck symposium talking about sex ratios in ducks and kind of what's going on there. So it's it is a it's a very research rich topic right now. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure that the ones that are paired, you know, I'm not sure how they signal that either. Like I makes me wonder it's like okay, does the one that's paired get up and like 14 drakes show up and like, "Hey, how you doing?" right? <laughs> yeah. We see it often in 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 mallards where the the female will incite this kind of incite her her mate to kind of at least that's the way my my understanding of what she's trying to do is she's inciting her mate to kind of chase off all these intruders but you see it on the water yeah and but I don't but I don't know what the pintails are doing in that regard well I I would argue most of that pintail courtship happens in the air so it's like yeah, how right, do you, how right. are you you know that's my what I was thinking right. there sorry to backtrack you there but I was just nope. curious I mean it, once they get to the rainwater basin they're just a hop away from you know the yeah. U.S. prairies and even the Canadian prairies. That's a that's a pretty easy jump for pintails. So yeah. they're close. You know that's that's a different game. Uh, the timing of spring migration. Uh, what do we What do you know about that, Scott? Well, there. Like I would argue, pintails. Many of the pintails are always pushing the ice line, right? Because as we talked about, they're nesting in April. You know that they're the yeah. first birds that yeah. show up. You know, mid April. You know when yep. when we've got one puddle of water that's open. Um, you know, that's shallow water that's opened up on the prairies. It's like a pair of pintails will be the first birds that you see. So, so they're, you know, as weather dictates, they're pushing that ice line and, you know, Chris places like the rainwater basin, you're right. Like they'll get hung up there if that area is open water and the U.S. prairies in South Dakota are still frozen. That's when they set in the basins, but they're always checking. You can be sure there's mm -hmm. always some that are, Scouting saying, is it open yet? Oh, no, not yet. Back to the basins. But there are yeah. some years too with, when it opens up and, you know, when the rainwater basin would be open, might be open all the way through North Dakota at the same time. With that said, there are, there, there is variation in the timing of, of this migration with some birds not departing the Texas coast until April or late March, let's say. And so some of the research that I was talking about earlier with Bart Ballard and one of his students and others are partnering on that research as well, is trying to answer that question. Like what is, what is the, what's the, um, the, what are the reproductive consequences of these different migratory strategies, whether it be the route that they take or the timing that these birds take it, uh, there is variation. And so there's, um, there's another interesting question that we'll be able to, to bring some data to, hopefully, eventually on the podcast with some of those yeah. folks. No, I, I remember being in discussions about those kind of things too, Mike, because, you know, what one of the methods that we used to use was we'd 
we'd harvest birds in those areas and look at yeah. their body condition, right? And my yeah. question was always, well, you know, are the ones that are left behind in those areas later, are those the ones that, you know, have not gotten to the body condition that they need to get to, to migrate further north? So, you know, yep. do you have sort of a sampling bias like you talked about earlier? Yeah. And what about those birds crossing the border? How many, or what's the idea of how many of these birds are crossing into Mexico and mm -hmm. going further south. You know, there is, I've heard people discussing that, that, you know, that there's a pretty hefty population of wintering northern pintails in Mexico. Could those those later migrants just be making their way north from further south? That's why they're there, or is that something that's documented as those birds were, have wintered there all season? Yeah, I guess I forgot to account for that half of the pintails, so we need to add another <laughs> we're half. We're adding a half. Layers, right. The other so half. Back up to about three halves. <laughs> the sixth three half. And, three and a half halves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think, Chris, I think that's context-dependent too. You know, like mm -hmm. years like this where it's like, hey, if the Gulf Coast is dry, then I would expect there to be more pintails pushing further south into places like Mexico and, you know, the numbers may be up in some of those wintering areas, but there are traditional wintering areas down there too that hold birds. Yes, but, Western Mexico, yep, yeah, for sure. But, you know, like like many areas that pintail use, they, you know, they can be wet and be awesome and they can go dry and be like, yep, you don't look for pintails there because it's bone dry. Kind of the same thing on breeding areas. Uh, you know, we have some of those that go dry and it's like, yep, don't look for pintails there this year, but when it gets wet, they will be there like crazy. So I am glad you brought that up, Chris, because we would have been remiss if we did not mention the importance of Mexico to pintails. I think they're probably, the, when I think about the four most abundant duck species that breed in, in North America, but then winter in, uh, in Mexico, we're, I'm thinking about blue wings, I'm thinking about pintails, widgeon, and shovelers. I mean, and so pintails may, pintails are going to be in the top four uh, yeah. in terms of the number of um, ducks that are traveling there from the, from the U.S. and Canada into Mexico. So definitely very important. West coast of Mexico is pretty important. The east coast of, of Mexico there on the Gulf Coast uh, is, is also pretty important. But I think, I think Sinaloa, the state of Sinaloa and some of those um, historic uh, estuaries there were, were super important. There was some rice production over there as well back in the day. I don't know how much of that is still occurring. I think a lot of it's being converted to shrimp farming. The other thing, uh, let me back up a little bit and talk about distribution because I said rice and reminded me that the Atlantic Flyway, not to totally forget about them and the distribution of pintails there. We did talk about how there is a breeding population. There's some breeding pintails in eastern Canada. Some do come from the prairies over there. But South Carolina, with their historical kind of rice culture, would have been a traditional sort of stronghold, I would imagine, for pintails on the Atlantic Flyway. I don't have a good handle on, on let's say, winter numbers, wintering numbers in the Atlantic Flyway right now. Uh, I have some harvest estimates a little bit later on, but, uh, you know, they're just a, a fraction of what we see in the other flyways ways so probably ought to do a break here we're not going to be able to get through all this in the time frame that we've got all right well let's take a break we'll come right back stay tuned to the ducks unlimited podcast sponsored by purina pro plan after these messages you and your dog are a team Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. 
Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Hey everybody, we're back, and I've got Dr. Mike Brazier and Dr. Scott Stevens. Doctor, doctor, doctor. <laughs> and we are talking about the northern pintail. This is our profile, our species profile in the northern pintail, and we are back. Mike, do you want to go ahead and restart this conversation? We can talk about, you know, we were kind of getting into winter distribution. We talked about that pretty thoroughly. Um, I feel like we, we covered that quite a bit, yeah. and, and we wanted to move into maybe some feeding habits. Some, You know, one thing we hadn't talked about, I don't know if it's on your list, but, you know, we didn't really talk about clutch size. We didn't talk about breeding. Breeding uh, ecology, that comes comes the, next. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, let's yeah. talk about food habits. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Some... yeah, we'll try to be quick on this. They're um, they're pretty generalist forager. Uh, they'll eat seeds. They'll eat invertebrates of all different types, kind of depending on where, where they are. We've already referenced uh, how closely tied to rice fields they are. Obviously, they're going to be a big grain eater in those, uh, in those kind of situations. Um, they love moist soil vegetation or the, the seeds. Seeds from from moist soil plants. They'll eat uh, seeds from from various coastal coastal marsh plants. They'll eat rhizomes from shoal grass in in the Laguna Madre. In those situations, they're pretty diverse forager. I don't know them to eat a whole lot of uh, acorns or things like that. I mean, that's it's one you don't see a lot of them in in um, flooded uh, flooded forest and forested wetlands. Um, they're you just you just don't see very many of them there, and so I don't know, Scott, if you have any experience with them. Any, I'm sure somebody out there listening has said they've killed a pintail and it had acorns in its in its crop, and and I wouldn't doubt that, but it's not something that you expect to see. Yeah, I'd, I'd be surprised by that too. It would have to be small acorns because, yeah. you know, like like just looking at the size of their bill, and you know, I think of them as feeding on. You know, small seeds, those kind of things. You know, I would, Little I would, bugs. I would point out. You guys have a southern bias when you think about what pintails feed on. I was thinking, yep, yep, and yeah. they like uh, peas, and you know, they, <laughs> yeah. they, they don't need to be wet up here when they're feeding yeah. on stuff. Yeah, so barley true. and wheat, and you know, they're walking around in waste grain fields up here. 
but yeah, I, you know, it tends to be smaller seeds. Like I would think, you know, when I think about peas, that these are dry peas grown in fields up here in Canada, you know, that's a pretty good chunk to, to find in their crop. Like an acorn is two or three times that size. I, I don't see that happen, happening much. Yeah. Yeah. And they do, that is a good point about them feeding being a, a dry field feeder. They're, not all ducks will do that. Some are much better at it than others. Pintails are right up there with, with mallards. Yeah. And I guess it would be pintails and mallards probably the, the w- w- number which, one. Widgeon right? will do it too. Widgeon. Yeah. 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 So anyway, they, they will do that. And uh, let's see. Of course, they go through the same type of dietary shift as we get into, as we get closer to the breeding season where proteins become more important, especially for the female. And so with, when you're looking for, for protein in your diet, if you're a duck, you're going to be eating all sorts of uh, aquatic bugs fairy and worms shrimp. and things like that. Yep. Fairy shrimp. Uh, they'll eat little crustaceans, little mollusks and things. Which that, is when you may see them in like a bottom line Snails. Yeah. You yeah. know. If they're in there later in the season trying to eat invertebrates, yeah. you know, that if someone does say, oh, yeah, they're in there. Yeah, yeah. Need need calcium for egg formation. I, I recall shooting one in the woods, Chris, you know, when it was a mallard mm-hmm. hole, but it was like in January, right? Oh, yeah. 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 So that's pretty cool. Yeah. You don't yeah. see that. I, I think you see it almost every year. You see a couple people will send a picture or something where I see like shot one pintail in a right. traditional green timber hole. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. They get corrupted by those mallards. Can't resist. <laughs> That's right. All right. See the big swirl going in and they just go right along with it. So, uh, yep. They'll eat any type of, of grain, corn, uh, obviously as well. So, uh, not, not a whole lot too surprising with, uh, you know, or unique, I guess, other than maybe the the showgrass rhizomes. That probably is one of the more unique aspects of them. When you think about all the other type of foraging that we just did, dry field feeding on peas and and corn or uh, flooded rice and and inverts, et cetera. But then they also are known to feed heavily on on showgrass rhizomes in very salty water, which then requires them to go get that dietary fresh water. Uh, Widgeon do that as well. Um, So, yeah. It's a little bit interesting there. Yeah, I, I, I think they're also a bit unique. Like you think about that slender, long neck. So, you know, mm-hmm. I suspect, I mean, they like shallow water, but they're probably feeding a little in a little deeper of the shallow water than like blue-winged teal are, right? Just because with that neck, they're reaching, they're reaching seeds and, you know, tubers and those kind of things at, at a greater depth than a teal would with a short neck. Scott, I'm going to... I'm going to talk next about sort of the breeding ecology, and then I'm going to just real quick, like age at first breeding, those types of things. But then I'm going to come back and ask you to talk about breeding habitat preferences, uh, things of that nature, because I think that's going to sort of lead into some of the other questions about like um, their conservation issues. And then we'll close out. Maybe we'll move things around here. We'll close out with a conversation briefly about sort of survival rates, harvest rates, and things of that nature. So, um, so... With that said, uh, real quick sort of primer here on pintail breeding ecology. We have already talked about they'll first start arriving on the breeding grounds mid-April. It's going to be a little bit later if you're talking about birds arriving in Alaska. But if we're talking about um, arriving on the the prairies, we're looking at mid-April. They will breed uh, at one year of age. So birds that were born this year will be, be capable of breeding next year. They're, um, they're pretty short-lived species. And so when you're a pretty short-lived species, you have to be geared to breed as quick as possible. 
Um, let's see, nest sites, and Scott, you can also elaborate on this, but we've talked about it a little bit also. They have a strong preference for that short or mid-grass prairie, very short vegetation. Um, they have, one of the things that I found said they have a relatively large breeding home range compared to uh, some of the other dabbling ducks that nest in that in that landscape. Uh, they are a ground nester. I mean, let me say that before I forget to do so. But with regard to that home range, uh, 1,200 acres was the average home range size from a study some 30, 40 years ago. I don't know. It's just, that's not a very research rich sort of metric there, home range during the breeding season. There may be some other folks that have some data out there, but um, clutch size seven to eight is what I, I found, yeah. which is a little bit smaller than what we see in, in other species. Uh, nest success can be highly variable, like it like in most ground nesting duck species. Scott, you actually did some some research on this for your, your PhD, but I found reports from various studies anywhere from two to three percent nest success for some study area and year all the way up to like 43 percent during one year of study in Alaska. So there's a high variation in nest success. Uh, I was going to say predation is going to be the primary cause of those nest failures and, and that's partly true but there's also a very important I guess, a percentage of pintail nests that are lost to agricultural activities associated with, uh, with, with spring seeding. That gets to some of the other conservation issues around, around this species and some of the programs we're trying to put in place. Uh, incubation period of 22 to 24 days. To your earlier point, Scott, very short incubation period compared to some of the other species uh, that are ground nesting dabbling ducks. Uh, time to fledge, about 45 to 60 days. So, a month and a half to two months once those little ducklings hit the ground. And like most other duck species that we have here in North America. The moment, well, within 24 hours of the ducklings, of the eggs hatching, the ducklings are capable of going to the water, feeding themselves. They're precocial. That's our, that's, that's what that's, that's known as. The, it's a female parental care only. The male does not have any role in, in protecting or providing for the ducklings once they hatch. And of course, once the ducklings hit the water, they're after invertebrates. They're in, they're they're not eating seeds. They're eating all sorts of little bugs because they need all sorts of protein to build muscle and feathers and all sorts of tissue to help them grow super quick. Um, what did I leave out, Scott? I'm sure you can I, you could add 30 minutes to that. Yeah, I, I was just going to say one of the cool things about nest sites is I know pintails are kind of notorious for you find lots of nests in little depressions, could be little burrows, you know, in that short grass landscape. It's like if there's a little depression that gets them another couple inches down to kind of blend in with the landscape, you see that. So definitely common to find, you know, a pintail nest in a little, you know, in a little badger hole or burrow or something like that. So just one of their unique features. And Scott, I just have a quick question, and I think this is a good question for you. <clears throat> you know, Mike was talking about when the ducklings hatch, they get, they're going straight to a wetland. Um, what would be, if you could describe like the ideal wetland habitat, you know, in the prairies, obviously, that these ducklings will find? Like what, what are they, what are the, what are they looking for when they're going to, to look for these, these wetland habitats to really get started that first 48 hours? Yeah, so they're probably getting into very shallow wetlands that will be some of the richest invertebrate communities. You know, when we think about brood survival, we think about seasonal wetlands being really important. Um, so, you know, by the time the ducklings are hatching, 
you know, some of those can be beginning to dry down depending on the year. But, you know, the ideal conditions for duckling survival is when we have those seasonal wetlands get reflooded with a rainstorm and there's flooded vegetation and there's lots of places to hide. And, you know, those, those are the years that when you do brood survey work, you don't see very many broods. That's because conditions are such that you see only a small percentage compared to other years where the wetlands are drawing down and there's nothing emergent that's flooded and you probably see every brood that's out there. So that may relate to a conversation that we had about some brood surveys of a bit ago, but we'll, we'll leave that one I, for I now. Thought you, I thought you might go there. <laughs> he was wanting to go there. <laughs> yeah. I could see it. It's like a stop sign that you see like, coming run right a quarter mile away. And it's like, yeah, yeah but, there you are. But, but best conditions are when we have those seasonal wetlands that are flooded, you know, emergent vegetation and they're full of aquatic insects. And so, you know, the landscapes where we have those are the ones where we've kept that whole community of wetlands all the way from ephemeral and seasonal all the way up to permanent wetlands intact. Um, and then the birds have the choice of using all of those when when it, good environmental conditions exist. I didn't mention anything about renesting propensity. I'm going to throw that one to you. I have a note here, but I want your take on that, uh, Scott. Because like I said, you studied some of these birds. Yeah. Uh, so tell us, renesting propensity, remind folks what it is and how does it compare in pintails to some of the other species? Yeah. So renesting propensity is if you lose your first nest, how likely are you to to re or to nest again, make another attempt or multiple attempts? And I would argue that pintails are are probably the poorest at this at this feature. You know, like if they if they if conditions are really good, we have good wetland conditions and lots of invertebrates and food is is available. They will renest, but it is at a lower rate than mallards for sure. I mean, mallards, they are like the energizer bunny. They just keep going and going and going if they're losing nests. Pintails, like once, sure. Twice, eh, maybe. Three times, probably not. Um, so, and, and I think it goes back to you thinking about those classic landscapes that they're attracted to. It's like, well, if you keep drying too long and those areas are drying out, it doesn't do you any good if you hatch ducklings and then all the wetlands are dry. And so I think probably in the evolutionary time scale, that's probably what constrained that renesting propensity for pintails. Scott, this is probably a good place for us to transition to to what we've learned through the years about how the unique nesting ecology of, of pintails has positioned them to be a little more, a little bit more vulnerable than, uh, than let's say some other species in terms of kind of what's happened in, uh, for land use on the prairies, the areas that are most important to them in, in, in that particular uh, geography. And I guess what I, what I need to do here for folks that may not be aware is just kind of lay out a little bit about the population status of this bird and how it has changed over the past, what, 55 or 65 years. Um, and if you go all the way back, this is data that comes from the Waterfowl Breeding Population and Habitat Survey, the, the May Survey. Breeding population survey has been conducted every year except for two since 1955. If you go all the way back to 1955, you look at these breeding population estimates for northern pintail, and they're like 10 million. Now, I don't know. That's a really odd number, 10 million, when you look at we're now down south of 2 million. But those first five or so years of the survey were were really, really high. I don't know if, if we'll ever have like total confidence that those were there were really 10 million breeding pintails. That's still hard for me to fathom that we would have had 10 million breeding pintails and they would have declined to an estimated 4 million breeding pintails within like 
five years. Uh, maybe it did. I don't know. But anyway, if you go back and look at that survey, you will notice that that real high blip at the very part of the survey. And But I know a lot of people are, even when you focus on, let's say, nineteen early 1970s to now, you see a dramatic decline. Uh, from the 1970s, uh, 1970s period, we were averaging about 6 million pintails uh, in the breeding population um, at that time. And I've been part of some conversations recently with some scientists there in the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, Migratory Bird Office that have looked in detail at some of these data. Uh, and, and when you go from the early 70s forward, there's a high degree of confidence in the quality of that data. Anytime you start a new survey, there's some things that are going on the first few years. You're having to figure things out. You're making a few tweaks. But when you get into it to this point, like the mid-70s, early mid-70s, we're pretty confident in that 6 million breeding population estimate for that bird. I'm, I'm suspect of those early numbers from the 50s too. Like, that's yeah, a wild number yeah. of pintails. If if that was real, I'd love to have seen that. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that true? Uh, and may have been. Yeah, may have could been. Could have been. I would. Yep. But but even when you look at like 1970s on, we we were dealing with average bee pop at that time in in, in the six million range. And when the 1980s hit, the extreme drought of the 1980s, we saw dramatic declines in duck populations in the prairies for all species. Some species recovered, but pintails not quite so much. They did a little bit and got back up just north of 4 million maybe 15 or 20 years ago, but now we're back down around 2 million. So from the 1970s to now, we've seen, what's that, about a, uh, about a 60% decline or something of that nature, if I do the, do the math um, on the fly, something like that, about a 60% decline. Uh, so, Scott, that's sort of the backdrop for why there has been so much attention to this bird, this species. It is one where we have seen long-term population declines, and we've seen those declines at a time when in those same landscapes where we know pintails will nest, we've seen other species increase or at least recover from depressed populations. Uh, so that led to a lot of investigation trying to figure out what was going on. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you kind of narrate what we've, what we surmised, what we studied, what we found. Yeah. So that's a big topic um, to, to <laughs> tackle, but yeah, the, the, the numbers in the seventies, we definitely saw declines in pintails. Now, I think some of the things that we've talked about is, um, you know, if you think about what we described Landscapes with shallow wetlands, short grass, those were easy landscapes to convert to agriculture because, you know, the wetlands were shallow and there wasn't much needed to drain those. So, you know, that propensity probably put them, you know, in a situation where there was lots of habitat loss. And and those areas also correspond with pretty rich soils too. So, you know, those, those were some of the first areas converted to agriculture, so there's that challenge. But yeah, this early nesting propensity, there was a time, prob probably, well, we know during that 70s period where agricultural practices were that, like in Prairie Canada, there was like half of the agricultural land that wasn't planted to a crop every year and was just fallowed. Um, so they would let it grow up in weeds and then they would go in later and cultivate that. But the pintails, it probably already had a chance to nest in that habitat. 
Yeah. So Scott, I want I want you to unpack that a little bit because I remember when we were writing an article on on the Pintel a few years ago. I called Jim DeVries and was talking about this. And Jim DeVries is a friend and, and colleague yeah. of ours who's he's Dr. Pintel yeah. up there for 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 DU Canada. He's now retired, but he was the one that really put in a lot of work to 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 decipher sort of what all is has been going on. And and I talked to him about this, and it took me a while to fully wrap my head around the timing because the timing of this is critical because I had already always heard about the the part of, if you go back to the 70s and in through the maybe 80s, I forget really when the decline started, the the very thing that you said is that half of the, of about half of that agricultural land was fallow. But then I, I couldn't piece, something just was amiss in my mind. And so what I, I figured out, it it is, it was exactly what you said in that when these, when these birds arrived in the spring, that area that was fallow, had started to grow up in some weeds, right? And, and there was there was time for them to hatch a nest in there. So you think about these birds showing up in April or early May and laying eight eggs and would we say twenty two days to incubate? That's like yep. thirty days you need, right, to get yep. to get everything done. But then the producers come in in let's say early summer, and they would disc that fallow that fallow right. area, right, to begin to prepare it do some weed control and begin to prepare it for uh, for growth or, or for farming the next spring, right? Yeah, but but that disking the fallow didn't happen until everything for that year was seeded, right? right? So it's that, that part that bought the time to get them through the 30 days, get them through basically May, even into mid-June before the farmers started tilling that fallow. And then the 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 other half that they would that they did put into spring production during a given year they would harvest it and then they would leave it untouched until the following because it would be it would then go into the the uh, what is fallow and so it would be yeah. untouched until that um that early summer midsummer once they had gotten all of their other planting done right yeah so you know when we when we talk about half of the cropland you know at first maybe that doesn't seem like much but that could be you know, that could be, you know, what would we have? 30-some million acres of cropland yeah. across the Canadian prairies. So that's like 15 million acres of fallow nesting habitat mixed in with wetlands. And and then basically agricultural practices changed. Now, you know, that, that fallow strategy probably wasn't great from a soil conservation standpoint. There were other challenges with that. But, you know, we moved more to where half the acres were not fallow. More of them were planted every year, managed with, you know, herbicides and, and those kind of things. And uh, yeah, basically we lost that summer fallow, it was called. And uh, and then almost all of that cropland would be planted on an annual basis. And that's probably responsible for that decline since the 70s. And, you know, the peaks haven't been as high and, you know, maybe not to bum people out, but I, I'm not sure we're, ever going back to pintail populations like we had in the 70s there, you know, unless we see a huge scale of, of change in agricultural practices again across the prairies. And, and maybe that could happen as we think about climate change and those challenges that that brings. But yeah, um, th that was a big driver. Scott, I would mention something to Mike about, you know, a program when I first started at DU, it became pretty popular um, with DU Canada. And, and it's an interesting habitat switch, but it's the winter wheat program. Yeah. And how that winter wheat, that short grass 
native grass, you know, is very similar to winter wheat. And, and I think we have some research that shows that it was, it was fairly successful for pintails. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Just kind of talk about that and whether or not that those types of programs are still ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is something that we instituted because, you know, there was a lot of work done and it, it, looked like there was potential because pintails, one of the other unique things that I don't think we've said, Mike, is that from a nesting standpoint, when we do studies, they don't seem to have a strong preference for any kind of nesting habitat. So they will nest, we, we call it in science parlance, in proportion to availability. <laughs> so if you've got lots of cropland stubble out there that's going to be planted to wheat, that's what they will nest in. So winter wheat is planted after the harvest in the late summer or early fall and then remains, kind of goes dormant during the winter and then starts growing but doesn't have that planting disturbance and, you know, there's some there's some spraying of herbicides and that kind of thing, fungicides during the growing season, but there's not cultivation during the nesting period. So we did a bunch of research around that. We did a bunch of investment uh, to help develop uh, winter-hardy varieties of winter wheat. And in fact, still today, most of the varieties of winter wheat that are planted across all of the prairies, U.S. and Canada, um, would be varieties that were developed um, through the, the labs that we invested in. So DU had a hand in helping develop those varieties that are still used today. Um, now, there have been economic challenges uh, around, you know, it yields pretty good. The quality is a little different than spring wheat. And from a market standpoint, it hasn't taken off like we hoped, you know, like we hope to have, you know, half of the cropland be winter wheat. We're not at that stage because of some of those market challenges, but we still do promote winter wheat. Um, maybe the, the evolution of that is there's, there's other things like fall rye that they've been working on, but we would... We would love to have a way that tens of millions of acres of cropland were providing suitable nesting habitat, and and that's really what winter wheat did. So we we still have that program that we work with producers and help them understand how to grow winter wheat and how to be successful with it. So it sounds like it wasn't necessarily specifically the winter wheat itself. It's the timing of how you know you don't have basically a disc in there in April and May. Yeah, so so really we would we talk about fall seeded crops and winter wheat was the primary one. Now there there are discussions about I talked about fall seeded rye and some of those things. So any crop that was planted in the fall and then lay dormant over winter and then just started growing where you didn't have to have that seeding activity and cultivation activity would would fit the bill, but winter wheat was the one that that at the time and you know, there's still some hope has some economic viability and works out there on the landscape. And if we didn't make it make it clear enough, um, so what happened when we lost that summer fallow is that we went to the continuous cropping, which meant that 30 million acres or whatever it is was subject to that spring planting mm -hmm. uh, practice and a necessary part of that spring plant. Well, so they would, the stubble would be left standing after the harvest the previous year. Pintails return north. They see what appears to them to be suitable nesting habitat in these stubble, the, these stubble fields. Um, back in the time of summer fallow, that would have been okay when you move to continuous cropping. If they nest in those, in those areas, then you know along comes the the mechanical equipment to do the seed prep and and uh, seedbed and planting and and that destroy destroys some percentage of nest. The other thing that that Scott I think some research up there is documented is that predation rates are are higher 
in some of those um, spring seeded cropland. Is that right? So you sort of had a double whammy. You've got the mechanical disturbance and, and higher predation rates. Yeah, higher predation rates in those than, than we probably anticipated at the front end because it's like, what's going in there? But, yeah. you know, there must be other prey that, that predators are going in there to find. And they're stumbling across nests because nests are not at that high a density. So that kind of led to some of the conservation. When we understood some of the conservation practices, when we use the science to understand what was going on to document those nest losses, that's what kind of led to uh, Scott's talking about. Uh, are there other programs, Scott, that we're, that we're trying to implement there in, in Canada or in the U.S. prairies that you're aware of that that are particularly valuable or we hope will be particularly valuable for pintails? Yeah, good good question. I would say winter wheat or fall seeded crops are the primary thing that really is kind of pintail specific. You know, most of the other stuff that we do, protecting existing wetlands and protecting existing grass, that that benefits, you know, all the species of ducks and shorebirds and songbirds and everything that's taken advantage of those areas. So, you know, fall seeded crops are kind of one of the uniquely pintail things. You know, there there are some landscapes that that we talked about that remain, that get wet occasionally, that are especially attractive to pintails and don't have a ton of other birds in them. So there are some geographic areas that are pintail unique, but most of the other programs are kind of duck-friendly programs, not necessarily focused just on pintails. And we talk about uh, the about breeding habitats in, in Alaska and maybe portions of the subarctic also being important for pintails, but there's not a whole lot of direct programs, not a lot of activity that we, we do there. Um, I mean, we just, we kind of hope those those areas continue to be productive. Of course, they're facing their own set of, uh, of changes and, and challenges, but, uh, but yeah, the, one of the interesting things that I don't have the paper here in front of me, but the fact that we've seen these more challenging conditions in the prairies since the um, 1970s, uh, where we've got uh, the, where the the nesting habitat is not as secure, it's not as productive. Uh, a lot of places, especially when you look into California, the birds that they, the pintails that they harvest in that state are increasingly coming from Alaska, and that's really the the case in any place that any wintering destination um, that's going to get birds from both Alaska as well as uh, as well as the prairies uh, that Alaska population is is increasingly important the, the percentage of birds harvested in California that are derived from let's say the prairies has has dropped dramatically since the 70s and 80s so a direct reflection of the loss of productivity out of that prairie landscape that we're talking about so, uh, Scott what what type of um, priority science uh, investments are you aware of that we're making there now? I've talked a little bit earlier about some of the ecology that's being studied uh, with these GPS tracking devices, looking at how different migration strategies affect productivity and so forth. But what else might you be aware of? I think some of the work on integrated population models for pintails is is, is important to understand, you know, at, at the big scale, you know, whether you know, what, what's driving populations, you know, how, how much should we be focused on harvest and those kind of things versus reproductive success and, and things that we focus on from a habitat standpoint. So I know we've, we've made some of those investments and that work continues. Um, you know, I think Mitch Wiegman and some of his students have been involved in that work. Um, yeah. So those are some of the specific things. 
you know, we had a big investment in, in the winter wheat research and, you know, we were sampling all ducks, but there were a bunch of pintails in, in that. So those are the things that come to mind. I know we continue to invest in, in research here and there on, on some of the wintering landscapes, again, seeing how pintails are using these different areas and um, if there are differences in birds and the reproductive success of birds wintering in different geographies. That's some of the same type of information we'll get from these studies that you've, uh, that you, you've mentioned there, Scott. We've covered a lot of material here that on these, on these species profiles, we typically go into things like harvest, recovery rate, survival rate. I mean, that's that's not a lot of detailed information that's significantly different from what we've talked about with some of the other species. Maybe we'll maybe we'll have an opportunity in the future to talk about that again with maybe some of the research, some of the science that we've we've talked about. I think those folks would be would be a good place to kind of supplement the, the those episodes with that type of information. Otherwise, I think we've we've done a good pretty good job here. It's a it's a species that's like one of the more intensively studied duck species that we have out there. We've learned a lot. We feel like we've zeroed in on some of the key challenges. And unfortunately, those key, those key challenges are massive in terms of what it's going to take to fully reverse it the way you talked about there, Scott. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would maybe just wrap by saying, I, I think pintails are a cool, you know, iconic species that everybody, everybody appreciates. Yeah. I, I'm not sure we're going to get back to populations of the 70s, but I think you know, maintaining populations that we've seen in more recent decades is is a pretty lofty goal. And, you know, that will require focusing on keeping habitat on the ground and things that many of us focus on every day out there. Um, but yeah, I, cool species. They're fun to see on the wing. You know, they're fun to listen to buzz peeps and yeah. those kind of things <laughs> in springtime. But yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I could spend a long time talking about pintails. Yeah. So keeping intact grasslands and wetlands on the landscape hang on to what we've got and try to find a way to get some agricultural practices that are more amenable to uh to spring nesting pintails awesome yeah well this has been great i know our species profiles are always popular i'm pretty sure the pintail will be right up there at the very top just knowing that it uh, how popular the species is in itself uh, but scott i appreciate you joining us today uh, bringing a wealth of information from du canada for the prairies and boreal mike this has been fantastic glad you put it together yeah glad i could be here filled up some space all right well hopefully <laughs> hopefully we'll get you guys on to do another another species profile in the near future sounds good thanks I'd like to thank my co-host, Dr. Mike Brazier, for joining me today on the Species Profile of the Northern Pinto. I'd like to thank Dr. Scott Stevens for jumping on the DU Podcast with us and sharing his wealth of knowledge about the, the species of the Northern Pinto. I'd like to thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us on the DU Podcast and supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient. 
and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. 